But you should also have nothing else in your sleeping area, tent, sleeping bag, whatever. Nothing of any food value or even that smells like food. That includes toothpaste, deodorant, things like that. So your duffel bags and or your backpack should be stored with the food up above the bear's reach, pulled up into a tree. And anything that smells like it could be food. So gum, toothpaste, deodorant, lip balm, any of these things can be an attractant. So I shouldn't brush my teeth or use deodorant when I'm camping is what you're saying. You don't anyways. <laughs> Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with another edition of the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Today we have Rick Winslow, the bear and cougar biologist with Game and Fish, joining us today. And we're going to be talking all things black bears in New Mexico. So, Rick, thanks for being here today. You're welcome. So before we dive into black bears and black bear management, let's talk a little about you. So how long have you been on with the department? I've been on since 2000, so 21 years and change at this point. Nice. And and what all different jobs have you held? Well, I started with the department as a game warden and worked as a a game warden primarily for three years and then transitioned to this position and have been doing it for the last 19 years. How about prior to Game and Fish? I worked as a wildlife biologist um, studying spotted owls. I ran a small fish hatchery. I worked for the Bureau of Land Management doing timber sale clearances. I fought forest fires. I did a lot of stuff. Wow. How'd you end up here in New Mexico? Chasing spotted owls, um, nice. the, the way a lot of people move to a lot of places in the West. Uh, and your current job, you said 19 years and change as the bear and cougar biologist? Yep. Wow. So tell us just from like a 10,000-foot view what all that position entails. Well, the bear biologist, and technically bear and cougar biologist, I'm in charge of determining hunt strategies and, and maintaining population levels of those species that that I'm in charge of. So basically, we have to, you can't count bears and cougars. You can't count predators as a general rule in the same way you can count ungulates such as deer and elk. Um, however, we can estimate the populations fairly accurately using a bunch of techniques and the, the, the current technology available, which is a part of what I do. I, I work on studies and help collect data that goes into statistics that allow us to make some population estimations. That's part of my annual duties as far as, and also keeping track of harvest and everything that entails, which is quite a bit, including determining what those harvest levels should be in order to be sustainable so that we can continue to have a viable population and occasionally remove them through hunting and or other things such as bears get in trouble and the state has to remove them at times, which is unfortunate, but we do have to do it. Sounds like a pretty diverse job. It can be. Well, so talking specifically about what bears we have in New Mexico, you see black and brown and cinnamon and blonde, but those are all the same species yeah. of bear. Yeah, we have we have black bears in New Mexico. There were grizzly bears here until the 1930s. They've been extirpated since then, a long time ago. And all we have remaining at this point is black bears. However, it's a misnomer. Black bears are... They run the gamut of, of options for bear coloration. Um, we've, I've seen them as light as very, very light blonde, almost white, to pitch black and everywhere in between. The more common varieties we find in New Mexico are generally brownish, dark brown, and, and a reddish one, which is actually quite red. Um, 
and that can be variable over the body. You can have lighter colored head and shoulders and darker colored underside, which is basically due to sun bleaching the hair over the time of the, the season. But they're all one species and all the same subspecies as well? Yeah, they're all one species and one subspecies. Within that, we've got one one species of bear in New Mexico. Are they native to the entire state, or are there only certain habitats they're found in? You know, bears are versatile species. They will utilize whatever food resources are available, and they're really driven by food and where that food occurs. You can find them anywhere in the state, although the lowest, flattest desert areas are the places you're least likely to find them because there's not very much food in those kind of places. However, some of the lower, the verges of the mountains, the lower edges of the mountains um, in the southern half of the state where there's lots of prickly pear and mesquite bushes and things like that actually provide a lot of forage potential for bears. They eat mesquite berries, they eat cactus fruits, whatever those might be. Um, they'll eat agave bases, the big agave melon or the apple. There, you know, there's there's quite a bit of available food, yucca fruit, things like that. So bears will go up and down in elevation at different times of the year, depending on what foods are available. In the northern part of the state, they, they're pretty much in the mountains for the most part, but they will go low to go after cactus fruits and things like that. In the southern part of the state, you can find them anywhere. They get overheated, so they, they become very night active in those hotter areas, but they, they could be almost anywhere except in the areas where there's zero cover, where it's just grassland, where there isn't any food. is not the kind of place I would expect to see them unless it's lost and wandering trying to go somewhere else. Okay. Okay, and in that you talked about them moving in elevations and switching to more night activities and that kind of thing. So kind of walk us through a year in the life of a bear, the breeding season, how many cubs they have, that kind of thing. All right. So I'm going to go with a female bear. Male bears are important, but not as important as females, how it really goes. The life of a female bear is um, fairly complex. She, say, wakes up out of hibernation, April or May or something like that. Um, they hibernate in a strange way. It's a, it's a true hibernation, but not a true hibernation because they can wake up immediately and be quite active. But they do shut down to the point where they don't utilize, use the resources in their bodies. In fact, their bodies build mass while they're asleep based on how much nutrients they went into hibernation with. So when the female bear wakes up in April or May, she goes out and immediately begins to consume as many calories as she can. That time of year, there aren't a lot of calories available on the landscape for the most part. There's mostly green grasses and forbs, which are basically all the plants that aren't grasses. There might be ants or beetle larvae from logs and lifting, picking up rocks and things like that. But there's not a lot of fruit or any other really good resources. There's winter-killed deer or elk carrion of any kind. She'll eat those. We don't really have a lot of fish resources in New Mexico for the most part, with a few exceptions. So that's really not an option here. So it, it's it's mostly insects and grasses and whatever plant protein and plant nutrients are available at that time of year. Um, she fills up on that. Somewhere in there, breeding season starts, which can go from May until August or September. Um, so at that point, she may or may not run across a male bear. And if... If they get along well, she may um, go through a breeding experience, and that could happen to, with multiple male bears over that three or four month breeding period, um, so that when she does have cubs, they can have mixed paternity, meaning if she has three cubs, they can have three different fathers. Basically, 
she goes through the, the breeding period, gets bred potentially, and then goes into what we call hyperphagia in the late summer, early fall, where she is stocking up as many calories as she can. She needs the calories to get through the winter. She needs the calories to produce cubs and to produce milk for those cubs once they're born, if they're born. If there's adequate fall nutrition, and fall nutrition usually comes in the forms of acorns, pinyon nuts, whatever fruit is available, choke cherries, raspberries, strawberries, wild mushrooms, just any, any, anything that is edible that the bear can eat that it doesn't have to work too hard to get at because while bears can be predators on particularly young elk and deer, that's not their big deal. Their big deal is whatever just sits there they can eat. Um, so available food resources that don't run away from them are their favorite kind. <laughs> um, it's not a laziness. It's just it's easier to not have to chase things down. So once they she fattens up for the winter, so to speak, about that time, it's time to start prepping for hibernation. Um, she'll generally pick somewhere to hibernate. May take a few weeks, even a month or so, to prepare a spot. Um, may put some bedding materials into it. It could be a hollow tree. It could be a, a hollowed out area under a rock. It could be as simple as a big root wad from a, a fallen over big giant ponderosa pine that's got a little hollow under it. She can utilize any of those things to hibernate in. Um, but what she's looking for at this point is somewhere that if she has been bred that she can also provide for it that has room for cubs. So once the a female is four to five years old, she is probably any year she has doesn't have cubs already, she will probably breed and, and attempt to bring off more cubs. On a year when there's poor food resources, she may reabsorb any embryos she's, that have been created through the breeding. Um, and so she won't have cubs or potentially has one versus three. And they can have anywhere from one to four cubs, although two, three cubs is most common. She goes to sleep eventually for hibernation. Those cubs are born, and we'll call sleep time averaging out about Halloween or so. Um, she'll sleep for a month and a half, two months, and then at sort of late January, early February, the cubs are born. Mom... Mama Bear does not really wake up at this point. She's groggy. She she may help the once the cubs are born, she'll encourage them in the correct direction to find her nipples so that she can start nursing them. And then she is more or less sleeping most of the time, um, still while the cubs are nursing and gaining weight. They're born about the size of a kitten, but very small, less than a pound, almost hairless, quite helpless, eyes are closed, everything else. But So all they're doing is nursing for a while. But as they grow and as they, they gain a lot of weight and size fairly rapidly by the very, very nutritious milk that she creates from all of the fat and protein-filled food she's taken on in the, in the fall, they grow fairly rapidly. And so within a month, month and a half, they're actually little bitty bears. Very small in comparison to mama. They're, they're one of the smallest born large mammals compared to everything else. You know, most things are... Uh, a, a tenth the size of the of the female. Baby bears are a hundred, and so they, it takes a while for them to actually become viable. They need to they need to fatten up and eat, but they do that while she's kind of napping on and off, and and occasionally helping clean things up. So when the when the female has cubs, she doesn't actually leave the den until April or May, and then the process starts over again to a certain point. Except that a female that has cubs will retain the cubs 
through the next winter hibernation. During that summer that she has them, she's able to teach them where food resources are, pass on what she knows, which is unfortunate when it happens to be garbage or some kind of human-created anthropogenic-sourced food that might get them in trouble later on. But she keeps them with her. They stay with her through that first hibernation, and then when she wakes up, she kicks them loose, and the process starts all over. A few follow-up questions on that. So that next year, so if she had cubs this winter, she carries them through their first full hibernation so she could have cubs again that winter. They generally, if they have cubs, they don't breed. Okay. Um, For the most part, it does happen. Um but it's pretty rare. So you, you only have, you know, the cubs from the preceding year with mama in the den for the most part. There are rare occasions where it occurs the other way, but it, they're rare. So it's usually every other year? Every other year, yeah. So okay. they don't, they don't have a particularly quick reproductive cycle, but they have a, a fairly efficient one. Lots of parental investment equals longer lived offspring. Well, what is the typical life of a bear? Um, Black bears in the wild can live up to 30 years or so. Wow. Um, they basically, their teeth run out before their ability to live runs out. Um, because if they do eat a very diet, it's a broad diet, and, and that wears the teeth down quite a bit. Um, so they just run out of teeth, and at some point that becomes painful, and the teeth get abscessed, and the, and the diseases happen, and they become malnourished, and then, you know, it's downhill from there. But, yeah, easily 25 years is, is if if humans weren't involved, that's how long most of them would probably live. Wow. Wow. And then going back to the cubs, what month are they typically born in? End of January is, it, you know, it's inexact, but it's somewhere between middle of January to the middle of February. So end of January, beginning of February is as easy as anything else. And then they don't leave the den until their mother does in May? Or? May, yeah. Wow. So. so they have, you know, they got... Four months of, of development where they're they're growing and thriving on her very rich milk. And it is a true hibernation? Yeah, she's all the way out, but she can wake up immediately, which is different than most true hibernators. Okay, is that different in different parts of the country, like black bears further north? Or are they? Oh, black bears further north are going to do it earlier and do it longer, most likely. So they're, the food resources in the fall are extremely important. There are parts of the country where male bears and younger bears that aren't breeding yet may not hibernate at all because they don't need to. If there's available, the reason for hibernation is because of snow and lack of food. If there is no snow and there's plenty of food, no reason to be asleep unless you're having cubs. Okay. Okay. So even in a bad year, if that female has cubs, she's going to hibernate, but the male might not do that. Well, and she may. It will be a curtailed hibernation. However, if if it's a if it's a if it's a good year and there's plenty of food, she may only go down even with cubs for a month or two. Whereas if it's a bad year, she's going to go in earlier. Actually, so they'll hibernate earlier because there's just nothing to gain by staying out there trying to get resources that are not available. Are there other differences between? the males and females as far as food sources and things like that? I Not mean, really. They, they eat the same stuff. Oh, well, one exception to that. The large males tend to be more predatory on things. Okay. They're more liable to go after young elk. So that's a difference. Um, the main reason females don't do that is because generally they have cubs, and cubs are are subject to all kinds of accidents and mishaps. And if you're going after a big 
animals, um, cubs could get hurt doing that. And so they, the females just don't, generally don't do that as much. Okay. That's very interesting. So, so switching gears a little bit more to the management side of things. So you've been out in the field for at least the past few weeks conducting mass surveys. Mass surveys for the last few weeks, just looking at available food resources statewide. Um, well, in all the mountain ranges, you know, while the bears can be anywhere, they tend to be more in the mountains um, because there's cover and there's more food resources available in the mountainous areas. So I go out statewide everywhere and take a look at what there is available. If there's good mast resources available, the females that were bred are liable to bring cubs off, and so our population remains stable. Whereas if we have some really a bad year or two in a row where there's very low mast resources, the odds are that we're not going to get as much breeding during those times, or at least not as many successful cubs reared. Um, They may be born in some cases, but they may not be successfully reared. Okay. Okay. And what what are some of the specific things you're looking for when you're out doing one of these surveys? Um, I I like to refer to it as I go out looking for nuts and berries. I'm looking for acorns and pinyon nuts and choke cherries and raspberries, sumac berries. These are, you know, some of the most available food resources we have in New Mexico. Um, Acorns are by far the most important thing. If there's a good acorn crop or even a moderate acorn crop, we're going to have bear cups. If there's almost no acorns, we're probably not going to have many bear cups. Juniper berries are a fantastic resource for bears. They can live on them, but there's so little nutrition in, gen- in juniper berries that they're basically not going to have cubs on years when all they have to eat is juniper berries. Does it mainly correlate with cubs, or does it also correlate to some extent with Hunting success or... Oh, yeah. Everything everything always works together. If you have broadly available resources, you have a better opportunity for successful breeding. You have a more dispersed bear population. The bears aren't going to be concentrated on food resources or water resources. And water and food go together. The more water you have, generally the better your food resources are. That's not 100%. They don't match each other down the line graphically, but they do match, they correlate well. You know, if it's, a, if it's a good year and there's a lot of food and there's decent water scattered around all over the place, bears are not concentrated and hunting success goes way down. Whereas if it's a bad year and bears are concentrated and or traveling a lot more to look for resources, hunting success goes up because those bears are just more liable to cross a hunter's path. Okay. Okay, along those same lines, on a bad year, do you also have increases in bear-human conflicts? Definitely, um, although the right term to use there is, is hard to define and determine. It's not bear-human conflict. It's human conflict. Bears are doing what bears do. We're just in their way. <laughs> and they're not going to change. They cannot change their behavior. Um, so we have to learn to live with that behavior and with the potential. If you live in a place where there's bears, you need to be prepared for the eventuality of a bear coming to get your garden or your peach tree or whatever it happens to be. Um, and that's not the bear's fault, and it, the bear shouldn't be punished for it. Let's dive into that. So how, if we live in bear country or near bear country, how can we minimize those conflicts? Avoid providing resources. Um, 
Fruit trees are one of the big attractants. If you have fruit trees, make sure to pick up the fruit as soon as it's ripe or pick it from the tree before it falls on the ground. Once it falls on the ground, it starts to rot. Rotting and fermenting fruit smells a lot. Bears have a fantastically acute sense of smell and can smell literally thousands of times better than we can, humans can, and quite they can several hundred times better than even a bloodhound, which is a well-known scent dog. They can they have a much better sense of smell, so they know where the food is. It's just getting there, and whether or not the safety it's safe enough to do so. If it's a rough year, they're going to go after the food resources when they're there. Um, unfortunately, a lot of things smell like food to a bear. Garbage can smell like food. Dirty barbecue grills. Your bird feeder. Each pound of bird seed has like thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred calories or something like that. That is a really valuable resource to the bear, and. Uh, that leaves your bird feeder generally broken on the ground and the bear walking away with a belly full of seed. So, you know, any any food that we provide can be an attractant to the bears. And so the best thing to do in order to avoid that is to not have any food available. That would go for water as well. However, it's hard not to have water, um, particularly in the desert southwest. You know, lots of us have little water features or bird baths or things like that, but those can also be attractants to bears and other wildlife. What about when we're out camping and out on hunts and things like that? Are there any additional considerations to keep bears out of out of your camp? Yeah, you know, there's a safety triangle that is is often talked about where you your food preparation site should be in one spot, 100 feet away, upwind should be where you sleep and then another 100 feet in another direction is where you actually stash and tie up into a tree or potentially put into your vehicle safely whatever food resources you have. And you're supposed to technically remove the, the, the clothes you cook in and things like that so that that is not an attractant because you when you're cooking, you're going to get food on you one way or another. Um, you should also have nothing else in your sleeping area, tent, sleeping bag, whatever, nothing of any food value or even that smells like food. That includes toothpaste, deodorant, things like that. So your duffel bags and or your backpack should be stored with the food, preferably up above the bear's reach, pulled up into a tree or in a vehicle where it's reasonably safe. Now, Bears in New Mexico are not as educated as bears in some place. And Yosemite National Park, if you leave anything that's an attractant in your vehicle and a bear rips into it, that becomes your fault. Um, And you get a citation. And bears can pull a door off of a vehicle quite easily. Wow. And get inside and ruin the inside of your vehicle as well. But even toothpaste and deodorant are things that smell. Yeah, they smell like something that could be food. And anything that smells like it could be food. So gum, toothpaste, deodorant, lip balm, any of these things can be an attractant. So I shouldn't brush my teeth or use deodorant when I'm camping is what you're saying. You don't anyways. (laughs) Well, well, since we're on the the lines of of bear safety, let's say we're not not camping, but we're just out on a hike and we're going down a trail and we come face to face with a bear. What should we do in, in that type of situation? Um, if the bear is just standing there, back away slowly. Um, don't necessarily make eye contact, but you can talk at the bear. Um, just say, hey, bear, and just let it know you're there. Um, the, the, big, the big problem that we have when running, you know, hiking and things like that with bears is surprising them. If we surprise them, especially a sow with cubs, um, they can react in a negative manner to people. 
um, by coming after us or, you know, being aggressive towards us. If it's a female with cubs, she's protecting those cubs and she will do anything to do so. So avoid it. So the best thing to do in order is to avoid the confrontation altogether is to be loud when you're walking down the, the trail. Um, we, there's people wear bear bells. That's good to be. I, I'll always suggest hiking with more than one person. Um, not everybody can do that. It's just not an option sometimes. But if you have multiple people, it's great. Um, wearing earphones while running in the woods is probably not a great idea for a number of reasons. Um, you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's around you. You have zero situational awareness. Mountain lions think that you look really cool when you run by. And after one season, enough joggers run by. It maybe will uh, take the step of taking the jogger. Bears, not so much going after you predatorily, but... If you startle a bear in the trail and it's a big bear that doesn't like to be startled and doesn't, it's got a bunch of acorns there on the trail that have been falling out of an oak tree, it might want to protect that food resource. And if you run into it, you might get the wrong end of the bear. So not surprising them is the biggest thing. If there is a confrontation, the best thing you can do is to back away slowly. Um, make yourself look big. We always say that. Hold out your jacket. Hold up your backpack. Whatever it is to make yourself look larger in order to potentially frighten away the animal. So it thinks you're bigger and badder than you are. The last thing you want to do or the last thing, thing if the bear continues to approach is to fight back. You should always fight back when a bear attacks. I know you're the bear biologist, but is this a big part of your job as well as educating the public on, on some of these issues? It, it depends on and off. Um, over the years, you know, the many years I've been doing this, there are years where bears have been more of an issue than others. Um, it's been fairly quiet the last few years because we've actually had pretty good food resources and we, we haven't had high levels of human to bear conflict. We used to call that nuisance activity. I don't like that because the people are the nuisance. The bears aren't. Um, you're, you're automatically labeling something that isn't a problem a problem. So, yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of education most years, um, and we, we provide a number of um, materials to the public that are available through our website. You can find information on how to exist, how to live with bears, how to exist with large predators, and, it, and it's all useful stuff, and it basically is a synopsis of what I've been talking about. Nice. Nice. So some good resources there to, yeah. to check out. Well, we, we kind of drifted away from the mass surveys, but let's talk about any other management projects that you have going on. I know you have a bear hair study going yeah. on. Yeah, we currently are um, through, a, through a number of different portions of the state. We're, we're trying to get a better handle on our the number of bears out there. So we're trying to do better estimates of the bear population in portions of the state where we haven't been able to do good estimates in the past. Um, so what we do for this is uh, we basically set up some little barbed wire corrals that are about 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot, 10 foot square. There's two, le two strands of barbed wire wrapped around some trees or whatever is available um, tightly. And you put a bait in the middle of this, um, hang it from a tree or dig it into the ground a little bit. So they have to lift up a rock like they would naturally foraging in order to get at it. And then, uh, then when they, when they go after this bait, they go through the barbed wire, the barbed wire plucks some hair from them as they go past. We collect the hair, which has 
hair follicles on the end which contain DNA and we send the those hair follicles off to the lab where they can give us a fingerprint for the individual bear um, we have these these sites these hair snares set up all over the place um, in a grid pattern on a, on a big chunk of forest we're doing the north eastern portion of the Gila National Forest this year that's a it's a huge area and there's a bunch of these sites out there several hundred and there's each one of these locations is important because every time a bear visits that we're able to get a viable DNA sample from, we get more information based on how many times a different bear and the same bear has visited a site and other sites. So the more times we can get these bears to visit any of these sites and to provide us with a DNA sample from some of their hair, the better off we are, which is why we use a bait versus some kind of a scent bait or anything like that, we actually give them a caloric reward because if you reward them, they're more liable to come back and visit it the next time. They're not just, oh, I've seen this before. I'm just going to go by. There's nothing to eat here. Um, if they get a donut, they're going to come back the next time and go through the wire again. I would too. That's the type of bait that you're, that you're using? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's basically old pastries that okay. we get donated from stores. Okay. Okay. And is there a chance that people would see these throughout the woods are they pretty common or no they're we try and put them in places where you're a more likely to run across a bear than anywhere else and b not likely to run across people okay so we we, we put them quite a ways from any commonly used hiking trails or roads you know where they're they're not they're not the kind of thing you could easily run across not to say it couldn't happen sure um certainly i mean if you're if you're out hiking somewhere in, in one of the areas where we have these things going and you leave the trail to answer the call of nature or something like that, you could run across something like this. Um, we just ask that people not mess with them. And these are statewide? or uh, Right now we're in the Gila region. Um, we'll, we pull them all at the end of the season. In fact, they're pulling them this week down in that area where we're, we're sampling this summer. We'll be somewhere else next year. Not even sure exactly where that is yet. And what all areas have you... Have you been in before? Well, between us and a grad student who was working on a similar project, getting similar information, um, we're, we're about, we have covered most of the state, although we're looking at, there's a couple more areas that we need to do, game management units 9 and 10, potentially next year. Okay, and then that data will be used to assist in setting harvest limits and yeah, things well, like that? Yeah, what we'll do is we will reevaluate our current harvest structure in light of the information that we've gained from this. Um, the sort of broad rule of thumb is that with bear harvest, you don't want to harvest over 10% of the population, which is quite a bit less than you can get away with with ungulates and things like that. But they're, they are a long-lived animal that breeds fairly slowly in comparison to having a, a, a fawn or a calf or two fawns every year. So you need to harvest more conservatively, whereas you can viably take... 20 or 30 percent of a deer elk population assuming it's a good population you can't take anywhere near that many bears so we just want to keep that harvest level and just natural mortality or or any other controllable mortality at no more than 10 percent of the population okay okay well let's let's kind of dive into that harvest side of things so so for most species in new mexico you get a tag through the draw and you have a certain limited number of days that you go and that's your hunt but but the bear season is very different than that right yeah the, the bear season is structured in such a way that 
we have the state is broken up into management zones. Um, the, everybody knows, well, assuming most anybody who knows how we do things knows that we have game management units. And that's where you would put in to a game management unit for an elk hunt, for instance. Bears are not managed that way. We have zones across the state. You buy a bear permit and you can use that bear permit in any open unit. Um, there are some special units that where you have to get you have to get drawn to be able to hunt those areas, but we, on some of our wildlife management areas and some special management areas. But as a general rule, the bear licenses are over the counter. Um, you can use it anywhere that there's a bear hunt that you can hunt. I close down the zones as harvest limits are reached in any of all of those zones. Um, all of our hunters that hunt both bears and cougars are required to, within five days of harvesting the animal, present it to the department so that we can put a pelt tag on it, making it legal for you to possess. We take some biological data, including a tooth, which helps give us an age structure for the population, the harvested population. That age structure allows us to... It's a snapshot of what's happening with the wild population. You get looking at it over time. If that if the average age of harvested bears goes up or down precipitously, it may mean there's a problem with how we're doing things. And so we could modify based on that, or modify based on the numbers we get from our population estimations. Okay. Okay. A couple follow ups on that. You said that the hunts were most of the hunts. There are some draw hunts, but most of the hunts are over the counter. Yeah. But you close units, right? So. How do you know if you're going hunting and you need to check and make sure that zone hasn't been closed? Well, there's a hotline that will tell you how, when we close zones that people call. That's what that's an easy way. It's the most easy way, and it works in most places that have anything resembling cell service. Otherwise, you can go online to our website and check those harvest limits there as well. And it's required to do so before you hunt. Okay, so you are required to make sure that that zone is open before Correct. you go out there. Okay, and then... You had mentioned the tooth. So how does that how does that tooth give you information on the bear? Well, basically, the teeth can give us an age of the bear, and if it's a female, how often, how many times over the course of its life it has actually produced cubs. You don't know how many cubs, but you know that on average, this bear produced cubs every two years for twelve years or fourteen years that it lived. So you know it's provide it's it's produced a cub at least six or seven times over the course of its life. How are they getting that from a tooth? Teeth have cementum annuli, which are very similar to tree rings. Um, they, the, those will tell you the basic age, but the way those cementum are laid down, they can, they can tell whether it's a female and whether or not it may have produced cubs on that year based because it's a thinner line versus a thicker line. Okay. So kind of like, like you said, wet years versus dry years yeah. in, in the rings of a tree. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. And so while we're talking about bear harvest and hunting season, you had mentioned August. So bear season is open now. Open this morning. Very cool. Um, with, with some exceptions, like I said, there are special draw hunts in some of our wildlife management areas and other special management areas that actually opened August 1. Right now, August 16th through August 31st is a general season where it's open. It's not open in all bear management zones in the state, but it is open in most of the northern ones. And I say most because one of them not. There, and, and in some areas south of I-40 as well. It is uh, any weapon season, meaning that you're allowed to use whatever firearm or archery or whatever is legal, a legal weapon to use. Um, and you can use dogs to pursue and tree the bears, or you can spot and stalk or hunt over a water hole 
um, or whatever is your choice of how to do it. Okay. Okay. And, and then are there any restrictions on your harvest as far as size and things like that? Cubs are illegal. Um, and females with cubs are illegal to take. Um, okay. So little tiny bears, you wouldn't want it anyways. Um, I wouldn't. I don't think anybody in their right mind would want a little tiny bear. Um, and a female with cubs, it's, once again, this is the, it's unethical to take some, a, you know, a female animal and then to leave those cubs abandoned. Sure. Um, so we don't allow the harvest of any of those. But any other bear is, is available for harvest. And then you had mentioned using dogs, sitting water holes. Are those What are the main techniques that are used? Uh, the most effective technique is to pursue using pursuit hounds to tree a bear. Um, you know, that's approximately 50% of the harvest is, is using hounds to pursue and, and harvest an animal. Um, the rest of it is either spot and stalk archery or incidental. Um, incidental is basically the guy who's out there deer hunting. Bear season still open, sees a bear and harvests a bear. Um, Archery, of course, is you know using a bow during archery season, and that's you're, you're hunting very similar to the way you would deer or elk. You're either spot and stock or sitting at a food resource or on a water, um, and just hoping that one comes along. Is calling a technique that's used, or yeah, not really? People use predator calls sometimes. It's, I I don't see it used a lot. It's a viable technique um, in some places at some times. It we, it doesn't seem to be used a lot here. What about you see in hunting videos online and things like that with, with baiting? Is that a- we, we don't allow baiting bears in, in New Mexico at all. Um, and you, I think we're going to see more and more baiting going away. Um, baiting has got some advantages, but it's got a lot of disadvantages. One thing what it does do is it conditions the bear to, be, to come after human-provided food. Um, and so that's a negative. Um, also, most of it's done on national forest land, and the Forest Service has is going more and more towards not allowing that to occur on their the, their lands that they manage, which is a huge amount of the public land in the country. Um, that is, a, it's a fight in those areas where baiting is traditional because one of the nice things about baiting is that you can harvest the bear you want. You don't, you're not just seeing a bear on a hillside several hundred yards away and trying to estimate how old is that bear? Is it a male or is it a female? Is it a big bear? Is it a little bear? Um, which can be hard to do with bears. So you're, you're able to, with a bait site, you're 50 yards away. You can look at the thing through binoculars. You know the, how big the bear is. You can tell usually whether it's a male or a female. You know whether it's a sow with cubs, and so you can't take it. And so you, you're, you're able to pick the bear you harvest versus finding a bear and shooting it and then not knowing exactly what you got until you walk to it. But But you think... That largely that will be going away in other places. It's there's there's a lot of talk about it as as whether or not it is ethical as a technique, um, and as whether or not it is something that could be habituating bears to human provided resources and creating more of a conflict bear situation. Sure, sure, but just to reiterate, it is not and has not been legal in. Yeah, New Mexico. we've never allowed it here. Okay, okay. Well, along those lines of of finding bears so whether you're a a hunter or whether you're hunting or scouting or let's say you're out to do wildlife photography what what are some tactics that people can use to be more successful in in locating bears well bears are hard to locate um just flat out not easy um 
They they tend to stay in heavy cover most of the time. Um, and depending on the time of year and things like that, they may be a little more nocturnal than some other animals, although you know a lot of critters are really nocturnal. Um, and most of that's heat avoidance um, and, and the avoidance of disturbance. But what, in order to get find bears and to get close, find what they're eating. Um, if, it's, if it's a good acorn year, this is a good acorn year almost statewide. Um, look for acorns. Go to those acorn sources, um, those oak groves and those, those riparian corridors that have a little line of oak right at the edge of the rip zone. And, and look for bears there. Look for bear scat. Look for where they've been eating um, grasses, where they've been rolling around in the grass, where they've been eating choke cherries and things like that. Bears poop a lot when they eat um, because they actually have a they have a carnivore digestive system, so things process fairly rapidly. Now they have, there's as far as it goes for mostly being ninety percent vegetarian, they process things fairly efficiently, but it goes through quick. So if a bear is utilizing a food resource in an area, it's pretty obvious there should be piles of scat evident. Okay. Okay. Do you have any predictions for this hunting season? Oh, I, you know, as far as the hunting season this year goes, it, it's always it's it's very difficult to make predictions on something like that. Um, effort of hunters, what else is going on in the environment? Everything is is goes into what kind of season you have, but. As a general rule, since there's widely available food and widely available water, the bears are going to be dispersed this year. They're not going to be concentrated. So um, we're liable to see a, a little bit smaller harvest than maybe if, if there was more limited resources and limited water conditions. Last year we had pretty limited water, and a lot of bears were taken off of water holes. Um, I don't anticipate that this year because there's water everywhere. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's about all we have time for today. I really appreciate you uh, joining us and telling us all about black bears in New Mexico. No problem. All right, I thank you all for tuning in and listening today. Be sure and check out our other podcasts and sign up for the New Mexico Wildlife e-newsletters and get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that New Mexico has to offer. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.